0: One, two, three, and I believe we are recording. Wow, what's happening? Travis Tucker. Are we doing this? Are we doing
1: doing this this?
0: right now? We are doing it. This is uh, episode number three of Raise a Glass podcast, the podcast devoted to the exploration of artisanal beverages. My name is Robert Sickler, and I am thrilled to have my good friend Travis Tucker here as a guest today. Travis has been in the hospitality industry for approximately 10 years. He's Recently, been uh, put on the San Francisco Spirits Competition panel. Also, has completed the um, what is it the certified, certified specialist, specialist of spirits. Yes, um, very, very efficient. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, for most of the last decade, you have been employed through the Nolette family. Who are the folks that produce Kettle One Vodka?
1: Indeed, thank you for that kind uh, introduction.
0: Of course. So, tell me a little bit about how how you got involved with Kettle One, and um, and where you where you are currently residing, and and basically your journey from the time you started with them up to now. Um, Yeah, so, you know, uh, as a
1: young boy, Robert, I always dreamed to work for the Vanilla family. Um, (laughs) No, uh, so I started in Colorado, which is where we met. um, And I ended up in Los Angeles. And in between, I I made a pit stop through San Francisco. So just been collecting coastal cities at this point. Uh, But how did I get here? You know, my introduction to the industry was just like a crash course. I graduated college, perhaps in the worst uh, decade to do so, which was at the end of 2008-2009 uh, during the height of the market crash. So there were no opportunities. Um, I got recruited into a distributor with the promise of being promoted through sales, et cetera, um, and I, I just I took it. I, mean, I don't know where it would lead. Started as a merchandiser. I was stacking cases at liquor stores. Hated my life for about a year, um, and then. Thankfully, I uh, was given an opportunity to do a variety of things in the distributor, the last of which was become an internal Kettle One ambassador. Um, and, you know, I did that for six months plus. And I was recruited to San Francisco to be the San Francisco brand ambassador, which ultimately led into the West Coast uh, brand ambassador role. And now in my current role, I am um, the regional manager of the Western United States. to oversee our district manager team for No Let Spirits USA. Uh, and I, I work for the 11th generation owner-operator of the Nolette family, Carl Nolette Jr. But I will say this, the only reason I'm here is partially due to yourself, because when I met you working with the distributor, slaving away, uh, i you were a master of whiskey, and I envied your lifestyle. I'm like, <laughs> what do I have to do to travel around the country, internationally perhaps, talk about whiskey drink about whiskey and eat at the best restaurants and drink at the best bars Hmm.
0: yeah those were those were fine times uh indeed so for the for the folks out there who are not who are not familiar with the Nollet family and and maybe not even familiar with One, which would seem unlikely since it's one of those iconic bottles that has unmistakable shelf presence all over, um, what what makes Kettle One special as a premium vodka out there in the marketplace?
1: Oh, I could spend a whole hour talking about this. And I did last night, actually, for the good people in Minnesota. Um, but you know, when you pick up a bottle off the shelf of Kettle One, you go home and you make a martini, you don't really think twice about it. You know that it's better, you can taste it. You can't put your finger on it always. Customers describe vodka as being, at least the ones they like, uh, more smooth, less harsh. That's really where their vocabulary ends. Um, But they they say there's something special about kettle One, And, you know, really what that that specialness points to uh, is three things. One, um, a history and heritage that spans 329 years. Uh, You know, when we're talking about spirits, more so than, say, perishable goods, um, it, it's it's more important to have that expertise, the know-how, uh, the skills that evolve over that time to produce world-class spirits and know let's have uh, 11 generations worth. Um, you know, the craftsmanship that goes into creating Kettle One, it, it's a mix between old world copper pot still distillation and new world column distillation techniques. So you get this uh, silky soft viscosity from the, the copper pot still and you also get that fresh clean vibrancy from um, the column still. And, you know, the base ingredient plays a major role. It's, it's winter wheat, non genetically modified, from the north of France, to the south of Holland, but the distillation is really where the magic happens. And it creates a vodka that has this exceptionally long, uh, slightly tingly finish that just grips your palate, almost like grape tannins in a wine. Uh, and then, you know, the family itself, um, you know, a member of the Noah family tastes every single batch to ensure that what you're drinking today is what they created over 30 years ago um and you know that that's really where the story started carl came to the states tasted a few vodkas knew that was the future at the time vodka had just passed whiskey in 1976 as the number one selling spirit in the state and he knew that he had to create something that was going to stand up against the competition in a martini which was vogue at the time in san francisco in US. and he created kettle and vodka had a a bartender at Bits, which is still in San Francisco today, tasted blind next to um, his favorite vodka at the time, and he chose Kettle One. And he was perhaps our first brand ambassador, and the rest is really history.
0: So, Kettle One is based in Holland, correct? Yeah, Holland, at the NOAA Distillery Founded in 1691. were they making vodka from the onset or were they doing Geneva or were they doing both? Are they still producing Geneva? So when you go to the distillery, it's
1: brilliant. It's it's a living museum and there are labels of so many different things. Geneva's, vodka's, uh, neutral spirits, flavored with all the spices that would come in through, uh, you know, the, the Dutch used to be a trading company, Rotterdam, which was the largest shipping port in the world at the time. Um, so they started with Geneva. Um, actually, a gentleman by the name of Johann Nellett, the first generation to start distilling, opened the distillery uh, to produce Geneva, which was and is, for those that don't know, kind of the, the godfather of gin, right? It's, it's like a missing link between whiskey and gin, uh, created sometime in the, the 16th century. Uh, and that sustained them for a substantial period of time. They did flirt with vodka throughout that history, uh, as one would, um, but ultimately it, it took the uh, 1980s and Carl Nolet's, you know, the 10th generation to come here and really take the distillery in that direction.
0: So you've been, you've been happily employed with these guys and um, I can attest they're a, a fine family. You were kind enough to invite me to one of uh, their special functions, Carl Nolett's 50th a year or so ago. And uh that was a truly luxurious world class event um lobster flown in from australia and uh ibérico ham from spain and oh, ibérico ham the, the bartenders were amazing uh and uh the chefs were extraordinary and uh just the, the class of people everybody there was um you know extremely Friendly and gracious and uh i was I was quite impressed with the class that his entire family displayed and so I know you've been very happy to uh be employed with him all this time yep. um if you know if you were to say where you might envision yourself ten years from now if you're not still working alongside them what type of dreams and visions do you have uh based on your reverence for food and drink
1: thank you for prefacing if i'm not still with them if they're listening i love you guys <laughs> I'm not forever uh but if if 10 years from now it is so that i am not still employed by millet spirits my one of my dreams and i've talked to you about this before is to open a, uh, a smoothie juice bar um which living in LA sounds redundant. (laughs) Um, but man, it's, it's everything that I am. Uh, you know, that health and wellness lifestyle is something I, I live and breathe and and preach really. Um, and to do that would be the, the realization of a
0: dream. Amazing. Uh, do you have any locations in mind? I do in fact.
1: Um, and Silently, I have been building a uh, business plan, just in case, you know, for a rainy day, if and when the right opportunity presents itself. And, you know, I I think it depends on my um, current circumstances at at that point in time. But right now, I live in Los Angeles, fairly saturated with its own, you know, shared juice bars and smoothie bars. So many. There are places like where I currently live that, you know, don't necessarily have good ones. Uh, you know, I think in Jamba Juice, for instance, I don't qualify that as a as a juice bar. It's more of a Dairy Queen to me. Um, would, you,
0: would you like some high fructose corn syrup with your fruit puree
1: <laughs> today? <laughs> I worked at Jamba Juice, actually. I don't know if that somehow foreshadowed my return to that business eventually, but um, yeah. So I think Los Angeles would be great because the clientele here uh, appreciate such things, and your 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 produce—fifty percent of the country's produce is grown here. So your, your access to raw ingredients is incredible. Although Denver is very underserved in my opinion. Uh, it is hard to find a decent juice smoothie bar.
0: It is and regrettably a lot of them wind up closing because nobody here seems to uh, appreciate such things at least sufficiently enough to keep them uh, operating. It, it's a little depressing because um, we've got some really super creative people here. I, I don't understand why more people don't value uh, the benefits that raw cold pressed juice and fresh smoothies bring to the plate, literally. Uh, And
1: you and I discussed perhaps bringing such things to a more exotic location.
0: Absolutely. And uh, the offer remains if you're seeking a collaboration, my friend. 10 years from now. (laughs) So. if you had to name your favorite vodka cocktail, what would that be?
1: That's actually what I'm drinking right now. Uh, currently, so I would normally sell you 50-50, but I am buying into all of the trends. I am at, on a, an espresso martini kick right now. I cannot <laughs> get enough of it. It combines two of my favorite things, coffee and vodka into one enjoyable beverage. Um, and also i love the story of the espresso martini have you, you, i don't have,
0: know the story
1: can i tell it do we, have, can we of tell course it? sure oh man okay so Dick bradsell are you familiar no so he's kind of like the, the, the godfather or he's been referred to as the godfather of like the london bar scene he actually recently passed unfortunately but in the 1980s he was bartending and a supermodel which he never named walks in and goes I want something that will wake me up, and excuse my expletive here, and fuck me up. (laughs) And on the spot, Dick creates uh, what he called the Vodka Espresso. Vodka, coffee liqueur, espresso, simple syrup. Uh, Not the sexiest of titles, it's evolved, uh, thankfully. But that cocktail swept Europe, Australia. Arrived here on dessert menus for some reason. We, We muddled it up with artificial cream liqueurs and, and truly the, the original intent was a dry style martini. Um, so the, the coffee liqueur plays an absolutely important role as does the coffee. I actually, am drinking mine in a mug. Uh, actually it says, this might be vodka, which I love. Uh, shout out to Chris B. who covers Southern California. She got me this. I actually, when I make it with cold brew, I like it over ice because it loses a textural component. Oh. So it gives you a fine. But, the coffee liqueur is absolutely key. St. George produces a Noah liqueur with chicory coffee.
0: It's beautiful. Oh, Big fan. Yeah. I uh, I have the utmost regard for what those folks do. Um, huh. Their botanivore gin is uh, one of the greatest beverages in the world. Um, I'll put it that way. Um, but yeah, they're Mad props to them. Um, What other coffee liqueurs are you a fan of? So,
1: all the rage right now, Mr. Black. Have you heard of it?
0: Which one? Mr. Black. Mr. Black, I have not. I'm out of the loop.
1: It's relatively new to the States, so, uh, you know, I don't know if it's made its way to Denver yet, Um, but it started in Australia. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to go to a restaurant bar in Australia and not find a kettle and vodka Mr. Black Espresso Martini. It is on every damn menu and every restaurant and bar I went to when I was out there. Um, But it's a cold brew coffee liqueur. That's kind of what separates it. Uh, Completely natural, nothing artificial, no cream, nothing like that. Uh, And, and
0: And being cold brew, you probably do not need to add as much disgusting fucking sugar because the acidity has already been subdued through the cold brew process. Great so point. it's probably a lot less syrupy and a lot more refreshing.
1: It is. They use Arabica beans. Um, yeah, it's a completely natural product. I believe it's uh, Australian wheat spirit that backs it up. Uh, oh. But, oh, my gosh. I've had it with tonic. I've had it with whiskey. I've had it with I can't find something I don't like it with. I'm also just an absolute slut for coffee. I love it so much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what um, – yeah, I did a podcast episode uh, the day before yesterday, and I was trying to fit within 30 minutes because it was, it was a little tough to do so. Kind of my journey from the time I was a kid to now with, with flavors and tastes, and there's so much vital stuff I, I left out because I was trying to move so fast to make it within 30 minutes. But one of the funny things I noticed was that coffee came up multiple times. I listened to it. Yeah, what I listened to it. Oh, you did. I did. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, you know the Ethiopian coffee, oh. like fresh roasted at your table. When Punch. you said that,
1: that is what got me into coffee—a
0: good coffee, at least. Yeah, yeah.
1: Because until until you're uh, awakened from the matrix, if you will, you drink <laughs> Starbucks with the caffeine, and uh, it just it all tastes uh, homogenized, burnt. Right, like that's the flavor. It is
0: burnt. It's over roasted for 100%. sure.
1: And then you have that beautiful light roasted citrusy Ethiopian coffee. And it's just like, what have I been drinking for the
0: past? <laughs> years? Indeed. Yeah, that's, uh, that's how I felt the first time I tasted espresso. Uh, like, <sighs> that. like I mentioned, I, I, I tasted coffee before and it was like, you know, probably some Folgers, you know, drivel or whatever. And, um, I, I thought it was this wretched drink that I did not understand why anybody would consume as a kid. And then I had espresso and man, that was a, that was a real revelation for sure. Um, and of course, anytime I found any, you know, coffee like when cold brew came out, it was like, Oh, you know I uh, was oh, speaking of cold brew. What is the best cold brew? You have ever experienced in all of your travels? Oh man,
1: that is yeah. such a tough question. Uh, actually, so the one I made this with today, um, you know, kettle one, Mister Black, uh, Sybil syrup, is a local uh, roaster named Groundworks. Um, they only produce organic coffee, which I'm also a fan of. Herbicides
0: and pesticides, no go. You don't like that in your bloodstream, and then your- <laughs> 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 you're so uh, tight. Oh, God, it's the worst.
1: Um, they sneak it into everything. But uh, yeah, so only organic, and they obviously fair trade. That's, that's become the topic of conversation. People think it's like a catchy marketing term. No, it is an absolute sin that people who produce coffee can't afford to buy a bag of coffee at the store. And that system is corrupt and needs to be changed. So fair trade whenever possible. This one is actually a Colombian variety that gives back to female coffee growers, um, which I absolutely love, as well as roasters. Uh, And it's just this expressive sort of citrusy, uh, brilliant uh, roast that makes one of the most flavorful cold brews I've ever had. So honestly, right now, this might be it.
0: Cool, cool. I've noticed um, a lot of the places that uh, do cacao plantations and whatnot uh the same problem lies there as well that a lot of times the people who you know bust their ass 10 hours a day making this stuff for us uh harvesting it and and processing it and shipping it have never even tasted a chocolate bar which is is just gross it we have to figure out some way and um in the way we go to business uh, as a global economy to make sure that these multinational, um, small artisan farmers are taken care of properly. And, and it, it's really gross that um, people balk at thinking a cup of coffee should only cost you know a dollar or something. Um, there's a lot of work that goes into a cup of coffee that people just do not think about.
1: Well, and I think that uh, also lends itself to, to food as well. You yes. know, I, I think what we're experiencing right now, unfortunately, and I'm not trying to take a significant departure from our, our current topic at hand, but, um, you know, with, with what's happening in restaurants, I, I think COVID kind of exposed a system that was already broke. Uh, there's been a price war in restaurants for the past 20 plus years, and it, it's driven prices so low that to get a quality meal feels expensive, when in all reality, that's how much it costs, and they're barely, if at all, making a profit. We oh, yeah. need people become, or at least, come to terms with spending a little bit more to get higher quality. And I've always been a proponent of that. And the more we do that, the more accessible and also cheaper
0: ultimately it becomes. Agreed. Amen. Um, what is one of the most impactful moments? that you have had upon being introduced to a new beverage?
1: Oh man, was that ding? Did that specify something in particular? <laughs> <laughs> was it the magic question? Is That this, was your
0: yeah. answer.
1: <laughs> Double
0: points? It's my, I've got to figure out how to turn this crap off. It's my, um, my messages from my phone, which I dutifully shut off are coming through my damn laptop. So excuse us, everyone. Sorry.
1: Uh, I have
0: two, but
1: I'm going to choose one. Uh, we we did natural wine when we talked last time. Mm. And I love natural wine. But honestly, from a spirits perspective, and I can see some bottles behind you, Mezcal. <laughs> right? I mean, oh I my
0: You should say that.
1: <laughs> Touche. I recognize that uh, cup as well, or the uh, cupita. Um, yeah. Beautiful. Uh, a coffee shop we went to, you know us, Right? Is that where you, where you got that?
0: No, no. Um, I believe I believe this one. Oh wait, was there a coffee? No, no, no. This I believe was a gift, to me from Miss Mia. Oh, okay. Yeah, on one of her trips down there. Um, it looks a lot
1: like that cafe we went back to a number of times. They serve the coffee.
0: Oh yes, coffee. yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. The yeah. Willy coffee,
1: Oaxaca coffee, and chocolate, and everything is just unbelievable, including Pascal. And you have opened my eyes to a whole new world. When I joined you in Oaxaca, and going to um, you know where it's produced out in the middle of nowhere uh, by farmers, uh, more or less, and just their their expertise and their hospitality, more than anything. Um, and, and just how raw it is and how rustic it is. You connect it to, you can't help but connect to it. There's just something that's like, when you remove everything else, it's just, it's, it's I don't know, it's, it's almost instinctual. Uh, it's almost spiritual in a way.
0: Um, All of those things.
1: I and it's just a feeling, right? When you drink mezcal, it's like a, as much as it is a beverage, uh, it's a feeling. And I heard when you, on your, on your little, on the, not your little, your episode yesterday, you talked about how you first experienced, uh, the effects of mezcal. It was almost transcendent
0: for you, right? Correct. Yeah. They, you know, people claim, I don't know the relevance to this or not, but a, a lot of folks proclaim that agave is an upper versus a depressant as the majority of spirits are. Um, I don't know if that's accurate, but it certainly feels like an upper because whenever I consume mezcal um, or a good tequila uh, or any other lovely agave distillate, I do get this this delightful energetic kick that's almost like what most people I would wager would get from shooting a few espressos. I drink a few espressos and I just feel like status quo, but I I drink the mezcal and I'm like, "Mm." I'm suddenly alert, keenly aware. And like you said, there's a special feeling. And um, one of the things that, that I've always thought is so fascinating is a lot of the mezcaleros down there will talk about how they can identify a mezcal by uh, who produced the mezcal by tasting the mezcal and judging how it makes them feel wow because you know enrique over here produces a mezcal that makes you feel this way while you know ernesto over here does one that makes you feel this and and this is this isn't like mystical um jargon babble that that goes this is like commonplace awareness amongst people who aren't trying to flex some weird metaphysical prowess these are just like you said they're farmers um they're not trying to be mystics but they're speaking quite candidly that mezcal each bottle has a certain feeling that it it um it offers to the consumer which which is really cool, for sure. And you
1: know, I didn't even understand it until we saw it. I'm a spiritual person, as you know. Uh, and when we were down there, they were they were burying crosses in the pits where they, they roasted the peanuts. And I, I was blown away by that. And then even at the bottom of the uh, the glasses we would receive had crosses on them. And I remember we inquired as to why. It, for them, it, it's, it's still very much a, uh, a spiritual uh, i mean all the religious perhaps experience uh mm-hmm. the production the the consumption uh, and we happen to be there at a very special time obviously as well uh for day of the dead but um i mean just yeah the whole the whole thing is just impressive to me and if you were to reduce it down to why i enjoy it beyond all that it is just delicious
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is you know uh obviously you're well aware of my devotion and affinity for single malt scotch whiskey uh when i first got turned on to Moscow, it it was it was doing all the things to me that single malt scotch whiskey did to me upon nosing and tasting it literally blowing my mind as as a you know a fan of the senses and examining all of this whirlwind of aromas and very complex flavors and finishes and textures. Um, And the one thing that mezcal has that single malt scotch whiskey does not is minerality. And that makes me kind of think sometimes of a wine or a sherry or something sometimes, you know, like um, there's, because, well, I started off in wine and then I went to whiskey and then I went to mezcal, let's say, right? And so... I think Mescal kind of ties in my, my love of wine as well as my love of single malt whiskey. Uh,
1: actually, I never thought of it that way, and I'm the same. I started in wine and then uh, come away in spirits. Because uh, out of all the spirits that I can currently think of, the, the only one, or perhaps the most expressive one, of terroir, which is that uh, definition of a place producing a particular flavor, it's, it's normally referred to in wine production, uh, but Mezcal, being produced from wild agave, I think over what 32 species or so out of the 200 More are typically yeah. used, um, and where it's grown, how it's grown, uh, how it's cultivated, how it's tr- everything, literally produces a spirit that can only be produced in that place from that particular plant at that particular time in that particular climate, right? And so you pick up 10 bottles of- when you talk to someone, and they go. I don't, I don't really like uh, mezcal. It's, it's too smoky. Um, <laughs> it's because they've had one mezcal and they just, uh, you know, it, it was too much for them, but man, if they were just to stick with it, there's that's one flavor profile. There's so many, like you said, mineral, vegetable, uh, sweets. Uh, there's so many other flavors. Fruity, and smoke.
0: Yeah. Smoke is just, uh, yeah. that It's a funny thing is like, that's another thing. The Mescaleros down there—they don't even talk about smoke. Like the Scots will talk about peat parts per million in their in their whiskey uh, to kind of signify the level of peat that one will encounter in in the or smokiness for the layman out there um, that you're going to get in the in the whiskey. But when it comes to mezcal, they all are just kind of well. Of course, there's some smoke because we roast the friggin' agave and and underground pits, but that's not what it's about. It's about the other flavors that come from the wild um, yeast, you know, the the open air fermentation that, and in, in the yeast strains from the surrounding flora fauna that are actually playing a very prevalent role in what's gonna come through in that distillate. And then what type of wood they're using to, to burn in that underground pit, because everybody uses whatever they have on hand, and so, like wine, there are there are like little microclimates all over Mexico, and in all these little specific subregions, they all use different things. And, and some people might want to use, you know, um, something like Spanish oak. Others might use um, what's that wood that is so amazing that starts with an M? Um, mesquite. Um, And others might, you know, the use, everybody has their own approach and they've been oftentimes doing this for multiple generations. Yeah. And yeah, it's really cool. And and the pride that they have and, and, you know, when they get together and they have these big, like weddings or birthday parties or holidays, whatever the case might be, and all the different mescaleros from the surrounding area come and bring their product. Again, people can taste and say all oh, of the, and they identify it by the taste. And, and that's not something that comes naturally to say us Americans, you know? Um, we're not used to tasting a product and being able to identify, uh, number one, what it even is, number two, wh- who made it. It's pretty, pretty remarkable. Um,
1: you know, it's funny when you said that, when you just described all of them coming together, I just got transported back to that moment where we went to that gathering of Mezcaleros uh, when we were in Oaxaca. And we were like, we got to go check this out. It's going to be amazing. And I don't know what we expected. Uh, and it's certainly what I didn't expect. But we showed up and it was like the scene out of the first Blade movie where like <laughs> the trance is playing. And we walked in. I think I don't think any of us were prepared for what we saw. We are like, what is this? And it was more of like, a rave combined with a small little mezcal tasting in the back
0: yes we
1: were all just like what is this place
0: yeah it was wild i mean talk about a great movie scene oh
1: man yeah
0: and that and that's something that is so awesome to see is like the mexican pride in in mezcal these days because for a long time it was like this hush hush stuff that a lot of the country didn't even know about and they certainly didn't respect. And um, now it's really getting its bona fide acknowledgement as a fundamental uh, piece of the fabric of Mexico and the history and the heritage and literally the bloodline of uh, Southern Mexico. Well, and hell, Northern Mexico has some mezcal as well. So, and you got Raizia and you've got Sotol, um, Bacanora, all of these, you know, once very obscure distillates are becoming, uh, I won't say commonplace. Mescal is becoming commonplace. The others are still, you know, going to require a little bit of uh, work um, from the from the producers and their marketers and ambassadors. But man, the the love and the respect and the passion that everybody has for mescal down there is is just super cool, and I love to see the. The renewed energy that it's given um, to the folks down in Oaxaca. And unfortunately, I haven't been to Guerrero and and a lot of the other areas that produce Mezcal, but I'm definitely wanting to do that in the next, um, well, (laughs) whenever the hell we can, let's put
1: it. Yeah, (laughs) good good point. Uh, You know, everything you said about Mexico's appreciation of Mezcal honestly, it could be used to explain America's appreciation for Mexico, right? Not to get too political, Um, but there was almost like this, especially with uh, the current, uh, you know, political party, uh, there was almost this negative connotation about our brothers to the South. And uh, I feel like, luckily, the people have completely reversed that and actually started to appreciate perhaps more uh, Mexico, the cuisine, which is so much more complex than people give it credit for, uh, the spirits, obviously, tequila is the most well known, but mezcal, which is still a very small part of tequila, I think it's like 1% of tequila in terms mm-hmm. of sales, but growing substantially. Um, and just, uh, you know, uh, the people, you know, more than anything. Um, I mean, it's it's just all combined. It's uh, one I think it's my favorite country right now to be honest with you. I've gone to Mexico more in the last like (laughs) two years than anywhere else. And I want to go back like every chance I
0: get. I want to live there. I'll put that out there. Uh, And you already know this and Mm -hmm. as does my lovely better half, fortunately. Um, But the recent uh, state of affairs has certainly put a a damper on that. But, um, you know, future future plans future plans are always good but yeah i um you know there there's something very magical about mexico and um you know like in oaxaca every corner just oozes with character and um and like you said the people are they're gracious they're friendly they're humble uh they're hard working um and they value family, and they have humor, and they tend to think with their heart more than just the mind. And uh, you know, of course, you need a balance of both. But they just seem to be a lot more in tune to uh, life here on this planet. And um, their heads aren't in the clouds; their their heads are on firm, and their feet are firmly uh, fixed on the earth. And they're just a a really remarkable in-touch culture and civilization. And there's so much that we don't know that the dipshit Spaniards destroyed during their subsequent invasions and the the burning and the looting of all these libraries of knowledge. But fortunately, a great deal of um, the magic and the mystery and the mysticism is still very, very much intact. And so... Viva Mexico. <laughs> uh,
1: indeed. <laughs> indeed. And behind every great chef or restaurant is a kitchen of uh Latino chefs and Latina chefs. Damn right. Uh, and yes. man, you said hardest work. You said hard working. They're probably the hardest working
0: people i Hands ever. down. Yeah. Hands down. Um yeah. Um, uh, I forgot what I was gonna say. Um well, let's see, I've got a couple questions. Uh, we've had some great conversation that really kind of skips the need for these silly questions. Um, so I may not even bother reading them actually. Um, um,
1: good and honestly, uh, unless you're gonna play this thing through, you could probably edit it out to be honest, if you don't like it. Yeah,
0: okay. yeah. Um, bef- before we wrap it up, because I don't know how long, um, I can even make my podcast, what what they'll permit and what they won't. I'll have to find a medium that will play one as long as we're doing. I don't know how long we've been. I don't want to even look, I don't care. Um, But let's touch on the natural wine phenomenon because uh, I think there's a lot of people out there. I mean, anyone that's in our industry, the wine and spirits industry is obviously aware of natural wine, at least on some measure. But your everyday consumer out there may not have any idea what natural wine is why don't you talk a little bit about what you've learned about natural wine and for folks out there wondering why I'm, I'm asking Travis, who's a, a vodka specialist um, to talk about natural wine. It's because he and I both share a deep seated reverence for the stuff. Um, it, it, it's, it's kind of like the mezcal of wine, if you will. And it, you know, it's, it's more unrefined. It's more the way wine was made way, way back when, you know, thousands of years ago, literally. Um, no chemical adjuncts, additives, preservatives. It's just like, a, it's the way wine is meant to be. And I had one of my best um, natural wine experiences when I was in LA uh, a couple years back. And Travis brought me to uh, Venice and brought me to a Thai restaurant that had like this ridiculous arsenal of natural wine. In fact, that's all they carry is natural wine. And uh, we had like five or six bottles and it wasn't just us <laughs> um, Responsibly. Yeah, and we did take an Uber, um, but bloody hell, every single one of those bottles was remarkable. So talk a little bit about what you know about natural wine and, and, and your love of it and how it resonates with your palate.
1: 100%. Uh, that restaurant was Night Market and Night actually received a James Beard Award nomination for their wine list, which as far as I know, uh, for being a sole natural wine program, perhaps was the first. Don't quote me on that. And I'm also um, more of an aficionado and a, um, a appreciation, I have appreciation for natural wine than I am, say an expert. So please, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> don't take this out of context um but natural wine to me stems from my love for it stems from my love to cultivate a more healthy balanced food system and that's done through biodynamics looking at the ecosystem as a holistic organism um and and treating it as such Uh, instead of using conventional techniques which is basically just technical intervention to create uh consistency that's the beauty of natural wine is the inconsistency and yeah. I think people look at it the other way around. It's funny, people think, um, you know, conventional wine is, uh, you know, the oldest thing, and, you know, natural wine's new because it's, it's currently trending. It couldn't be more opposite. Conventional wine's new. Natural wine is the way that it was traditionally, perhaps, made because it's a minimalist approach to wine, right? Yes. There's none of, like, As you put earlier, there's none of the herbicides, none of the pesticides. There's none of uh, the over 80 additives that um, US is allowed to add to wine without telling you, by the way, uh, to make it consistent, taste the same way, look the same way, smell the same way that it does every single time. Uh, and so people get used to that. And, you know, to be honest, people like consistency. Same reason why, you know, Scotch whiskey producers add caramel color to get that, that brown hue on the shelf. Um, and so there's a lot they're not telling us. And when you peel back the veil of perhaps your favorite wine, you might not like what you see because there's more than just grapes in there. And so I, I drink from a health and wellness perspective and nothing aligns with that more in the biodynamics we talked about than natural
0: wine. So, um, what, what type of properties does natural wine possess? that a conventional wine does not is when you're when you're talking about um didn't you say something about gut health at one point with with uh referring to natural wine or something or uh we were talking like a little about kefir uh, but i think that
1: conversation led into that but yes i mean any type of fermented beverage that's fermented using native yeast instead of yeast created in a lab which is what conventional wine uses is going to have in my opinion a uh a bounty of benefits for your gut because it's being exposed to a lot of positive bacteria, not the negative kind that repopulates your gut health. Um, obviously the alcohol can play a negative role there. So uh, you know, don't take that um, as a healthy beverage. I never want to refer to alcohol as being healthy, but if one were to choose a natural wine as opposed to a conditional wine and believe in the antioxidant rich grapes that go into it, I would say that natural wine is perhaps better for you than say conventional wine would be. And in terms of flavor profiles, this is actually, it's funny, this is where experts disagree, not only the farming techniques, but also the flavor. Because a lot of people, a lot of experts, a lot of sommeliers, traditional at least, think that uh, natural wine has perceived flaws. And those perceived flaws, that funkiness, if you will, that barnyard characteristic that we seek out now and love, are things that they call out as actually being not good, it's and so
0: character.
1: Yes, and you know where this came from? I found out. Mm. Robert Parker. There's this thing called Parkerism. I don't know if you've heard of it. And I, I read this. It's not coming from me. But in the 1980s, he created that hundred point scale. Yeah. And it ultimately defined the way that Americans perceive wine. Big juicy jammy. That the California cab, right? That was yeah. the king. Um, And it it painted this, uh, I think, unrealistic perception of what wine could be and what wine has traditionally perhaps been.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Well, next time I come to LA, uh, we're going to have to go back to that place. But I'd love to go to some other watering holes that have a good share of that stuff because I don't know of a significant amount of places here that do a really extensive natural wine program. Um, if anyone from Denver sees this, and you know of any, <laughs> do alert me because I'd love to go support. Um, I know of a shop,
1: by the way, a bottle shop in Denver that would started specializing. It's in uh, Acorn. It's that um, bottle shop traditionally that sold spirits, but they I think oh Mary
0: McLean's place. Wine in yeah. the source yeah sorry oh, yeah yeah i know they have i'm talking about restaurants though
1: Oh, okay
0: yeah yeah um no they're they've been they've been passionate advocates of that category for some time love that yeah yeah um well travis it's been a great uh conversation i'm sure we could go on and on but i don't know that the rest of the world um has the interest of watching us <laughs> <laughs> He does like that as much as we do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we'll, we'll definitely have to do a follow-up. Uh, we should do something definitely like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? on Not on set, but on, um, yeah, I guess on set or not on set, on location at one of these places in LA that does the uh, wines. We should actually... Film the bottles and us tasting them and talking about them. I think that would be a lot of fun.
1: I would love that. I went to a little place in Paso Robles called Ambeth, who is preaching about dynamics. They have been at the first that you said, as I know in Paso Robles, we could even go up there. I mean, they're all about it. That would love be uh, amazing. Beautiful
0: country up there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> if I can say one thing in closing, uh, I know um, this is perhaps your first venture into podcasts. This is also mine. So whoever's listening, be
0: gentle. <laughs> <laughs> or not, or now, whatever we God. need. To... <laughs> yeah. we'll be okay. Um, also, I I cannot wait, and and dear God, please, please let let the universe make this happen. Um, let all of this madness subside before October, so you and myself and many of Jody and I's friends can. Unite together in our sacred valley down you know where, and raise a glass um, to each other and say,
1: "pey.
0: I don't know if you are aware of this or not, but uh, Assis, Cortez has launched his own uh, he and his father's line of Mescal. Um, and That's Guerrero, right? no 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 okay. that's that that is Orgen de raiz okay that is a separate project that he's doing oh. but he and his father have an entire line of mezcal from oaxaca wow. called dish bay and this one is um the quixote Ooh, it's lovely um but it's not in the states yet but when it is I'll, I'll alert you and get some in your hands in fact i'll send you the link to uh to order some if you'd like Yes, um, you can actually purchase the bottles, and if if anyone from down there heads up here, they can bring it bring it this way, and we can get it to you. Um, or they can hold on to it, and we can get it in in uh, October.
1: Indeed, that would be lovely.
0: Cool. Um, well, it's been a pleasure, um, and uh, God, I don't know how long this has been. Uh, for those of you who've followed the entire thing, thank you so very much. Um, we will take any, um, any constructive criticism you'd like to give, uh, constructive criticism and, um, and of course, any, uh, any insights and any suggestions for future podcasts would be warmly embraced as well. So Travis, I'll let you get off to enjoy your weekend. Give your lovely lady a hug from me. I hope she's doing fabulous. Uh,
1: she is and uh, when you say a better half she is very much my better half
0: <laughs> <laughs> we love us some cheers it's been uh, too long since we've all gotten together but we'll make that happen soon um all right we'll have a good night i'm gonna pause i'm gonna stop this i'm going to hit stop recording and i assume we're done